I don't know if you've ever um, caught yourself in a situation where you were um, driving and uh, you became either angry or someone became angry at you and it quickly escalated, right? Because it can. Um, there's a show on Netflix. I'm, I'm not necessarily recommending this show for you to watch, but you're adults. It's called Beef. Um, and Beef is the, the, the telling of a story that starts with road rage. The two main characters, Amy and Danny, find themselves in conflict, and they respond to that conflict with all their baser instincts. And and really, the the story is then a spiraling effect of this one road rage incident that takes place through a neighborhood and uh, a neighbor's lawn being destroyed by the car, and then it, it starts this beef that lasts throughout the, the season. Um, Amy and Danny are played excellently by a- Ali Wong and Steve Yuen. And um, it kind of spirals from the beef between them to everyone else they, they know. It's like, like a <clears throat> pebble that is thrown into a lake and causes ripple after ripple after ripple. Juliet Alvey wrote a great piece about the show. She says, throughout the season, past events and current struggles reveal in both Amy and Danny's life events that they would like to hide and pretend do not exist. So, so what she's saying is, is that the road rage incident causes what's inside to come outside, right? Things that we pretend aren't there, that we push down, suddenly in these moments of intense passion, they come out. And as they do, it's almost weirdly that Amy and Dan- Danny become these like soulmates of hate who encounter each other at just the right time. They, they each become an outlet for the other to release these, these hidden things and bring them out of the darkness into the light. And, and there's almost, like you and I both experience when we get into these situations, a, a sense of satisfaction and righteousness that releases with the rage. From the very beginning, we see Amy is longing to bring darkness to light. When she she starts to tell her husband, George, George is this dorky, stay-at-home dad, cyclist. He's an artist. He's too sincere for his own good. He cuts her off in this one scene mid-sentence as she's doing this big confession to him. She's revealing the darkness of her heart. He says, before you spiral, I'm going to have to stop you right there. Take a deep breath pause. You've got to start focusing on the positive, okay? You know, maybe we should start doing gratitude journals again. He wants to skip to the light and not deal with the dark. He doesn't want to see the ugliness of life, but but like his own artwork, you can't make something be beautiful that isn't. In another scene, Amy is receiving relationship advice from her mother-in-law who says, the moment you begin to worry, the moment you acknowledge the worry, you solidify solidified into existence. All you have is perception. There's no objective truth. You create the truth you want to inhabit. And this is how she functioned with her late husband, and it worked for her. And she tries to convince herself and Amy that it did. But for those of us on the other side of the wall, we see that her approach has just left her sad and lonely. Later on, Amy goes to her own mother to bring her past hurts to life, but before she can even say a word, her mom says, you'll realize this as you get older, but if you look back all the time, you crash. 
Whatever's going on, put it behind you. George is good for you. She dodges the truth about her own life and seems, to, seems content to keep ugliness hidden, just like all the other characters surrounding Amy. Only they, they aren't content. They aren't happy. Amy's learning from everyone around her that in order to have a perfect life, the ugliness has to stay hidden, that no one can know. Her, her fear is if she truly comes out as she is, no one will love her, and she will be alone in her shame, only she's not alone. She has someone else with the exact same fear of being left alone, of being found out, of having the ugliest come to light, and that someone else is Danny. The person she gets into the road rage with, the person she has a beef with, he's the only person that notices her ugliness, which might be why their lives are, are like drawn to each other like moths to flame. He's a light that might kill her, but at least she doesn't have to hide. The show is unpacking this power of being seen at your best and at your worst. What do you do when someone does something embarrassing in your presence? Often we put our heads down. We're embarrassed for them. That's why The Office is like not a show for everyone because it's like it confronts you with this awkwardness and you, you have to like deal with it. But when we do that, we're withholding dignity because God's image is on them, on every human. God's image is in you this morning. And the blessing of number six is a blessing to be fully human and let God be fully God. What Isaac says, the gift of not being the Christ. And my question for you this morning is a couple things. Do you long to be seen and can you see others? So the working out of the blessing, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this ironic blessing, right? Remember the story of Israel they get to the, they're about to go into the promised land, and Aaron blesses the people. That Jesus is the fulfillment of that blessing. And because of Jesus, we're enabled, through being blessed, to be a blessing. And one of the main aspects, don't, don't miss this in number six, one of the main aspects of the blessing of God on the people of God is God's attunement. He, he, he looks at you. He looks at me. He sees us as you are. He looks, he sees, he knows. It's one of the things, if you've watched The Chosen Show, like one of the things I love about the show is how they portray a Jesus who sees, who sees you. He is attuned. And, and that attunement gives us dignity in seeing us. And then under that blessing, and keeping us, and gracing us, and giving us his peace. God sees, turns his face, turns his countenance, gives it to you, and then keeps you, graces you, gives you his peace. And this is our commission, City Press. What ways do you need to be seen by others, and who do you need to see this morning in order to bless them? Christ enables us to see. So the outline this morning, four points, looking at others, looking at others differently, looking at different others, and then looking at the body. Point number one, looking at others. The first implication of being blessed, we see each other. 
we were made, according to the Bible, in the likeness of God. That term connotes three-dimensional object. You're made as bodies, not just souls. We have faces. You're limited. Your peripheral vision is limited. Your, your limbs are limited in range. Your, your ears, they point sli- out, outward and slightly forward, not behind. Your, your limitations require others. You're dependent. Your, your knowledge of yourself cannot be full without someone else. We can't see our facial expressions. We can't hear the tone of, uh, of our voice, how we sound to another person. We can't see the back of our heads, the back of our elbows. None of this is possible without some sort of mediation. And God designed you that way. To live contrary to that design is to live contrary to your nature. God says it's not good for man to be alone. Two are better than one. To be in the image of God then is to be a social creature. You're created for relationship. I love this from Michael Glodo. This series is based upon his book. Pablo Picasso's portraits are unmistakable. In his synthetic uh, cubism style, he painted parts of the face in seemingly random positions, like a poorly executed uh, version of Mr. Potato Head. Interestingly, Picasso first began to paint portraits partly because he had a a disorder called face blindness. Face blindness is not a problem with the eye, but rather a neurological problem that can be congenital or the result of an injury. Occurring with varying degrees of severity, a person with face blindness has difficulty recognizing another's face visually. Close friends, relatives, even oneself becomes unrecognizable. So Picasso, in his portraits, broke down the face into its components, like pieces of a puzzle, and then tried to represent them in two dimensions. The striking novelty of his portraits is largely due to his attempt to represent in two dimensions what actually exists in three. Human beings, being in the likeness of God, are bodily beings who cannot be fully known without knowledge by and from others. Now think of it this way, if God endowed a creature to reflect his image, yet there was no other creature to recognize and revel in the glory of that image, God would not receive glory or honor through that image-bearing creature. An artist creates so that others might see. God created image-bearers in order that they might not only reflect his image, but also recognize his image in others. This is why the fall is so disruptive in the social realm. In the fall, there's this wreckage, the image of God in us. When when a piece of art is destroyed or damaged, we use terms like vandalized or defaced. In the fall, humanity is defaced. God's masterpiece is vandalized. And as a result, we can't look at one another rightly. We have this dysmorphia towards ourselves and others. We can't see the image of God in another rightly. We we see their body, we, we see their face, but we only see it through the lens of sin and the fall. Now think about this way. We see others how? Often like they exist for us, for our benefit. They, they, they must have our face. 
or, or we're so desperate for the approval of others, we must have their face. And the blessing of the gospel, of this blessing in numbers that finds fulfillment in Jesus, that blessing is to, to call us to something else, to see each other fully. To look at them, to look at one another and see both glory and shame. We need to look at each other as the image of God. Second, we need to look at each other differently. Neighbor love and God's love are, are inseparable in the Bible. They're two sides of the same coin. It, it's a contradiction in the Bible to love God and not love neighbor. In Psalm 115, the opening appeal of the psalm is for God's glory. The psalmist asks, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, now what follows in Psalm 115 is what's called a polemic. It's like this face-off between God, the, the, the God of the universe, Yahweh, and the gods of the nations. And the psalmist names seven body parts of these other gods. These body parts can't perform their functions. Their, their mouths can't speak as oracles. Their, their eyes can't see into the future. Their ears can't hear their cries, their petitions. The noses can't smell offerings. Their, their hands can't save. Their, their feet can't carry. Their throats can't, can't groat or groan or even express emotions. And the psalmist is saying these gods can't even do what the animals do, but not the God of Israel. He, he's alive. He's living. He's all-powerful. Now, why do the nations say, where is their God? Because... Because Israel didn't have an image for this God. Why? Because every Israelite was an image, a living image of God. Israel was mocked for idolist worship. The psalmist says God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. It pleased God in verse 6 of Psalm 115 to give the earth to the children of man. It pleased God to give them pastors and priests to bless them. All of them. The, the blessing is for all of Israel from the greatest to the least. All so they might become worshipers of Yahweh. This, this emphasizes God's indiscriminate care for all people. The law of Moses is built on this idea of particular and specific care for all, including the least of these. There's so many commands in the law for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, all of this emphasized the fundamental idea. We are the image of God in the sanctuary. Every wor worshiper of God is made in God's image. Thus, faithful keeping of the law meant right love for God and right love for neighbor. Now, what happens when a king isn't given honor? The implication, you give honor to the king by loving your neighbor and his images. The third point, the blessing, God's face turned towards us, looking at others, right? Looking at others differently as God's image, and then looking at different others. And by different others, this might be those that we have difficulty with. We might overlook. We might look down upon. David Grossman wrote a controversial 1995 book called On Killing, he drew upon studies from World War II that concluded that most combat soldiers didn't fire, fire their weapons in combat. And even when they did, 
they often didn't actually aim at their enemies. The, the reason the studies concluded was that people have this innate resistance to killing other human beings, especially when those other human beings resemble themselves. Based on the study, study's findings, infantry training was dramatically modified through behavioral conditioning in order to overcome this natural resistance. Consequently, the fire rate and kill rate climbed dramatically to 50% in the Korean War and 90% in the Vietnam War. Tragically, there occurred incidents of, of indiscriminate killing, such as, the, such, such as the infamous My Lai Massacre. There were also the hidden wounds of the, the many veterans who experienced uh, post-combatic stress syndrome with long-lasting psychological difficulties. Now, while Grossman's application of these developments to contemporary problems of murder and violence was debated, the larger point about how human beings view other human beings is relevant to how we look upon others. It is entirely possible to look at other human beings, even fellow believers in Jesus, and not see what? The image of God in them. Recognition of God's image is vital to you and I if we want to foster love of neighbor. When, when Jesus tells the people of, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he is calling people to have compassion towards those in need and condemning any relig religion that ignores those needs, right? The, the priest passes by, but the, the Samaritan has compassion. He bound him up. He brought him in. He took care of him. He gave money and promised to repay money. Yet as striking as was the contrast between the religious professionals, a Levite and a priest, and the unclean heretic, the Samaritan, there is a more subversive point Jesus is making in the story. Now the context of the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is you can't forget the, the lawyer's question, which prompts the parable. The, the lawyer asks in Matthew 10, 25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, now, this might sound to us kind of like, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? But the question is more like this. How can I be assured that I have a share in the inheritance of the people of God? He, he wanted to know Jesus' answer to who is really in. Who are the insiders with the people of God. And Jesus responds with the two great commands, love God, love neighbor. The lawyer presses him in order to justify himself, we're told. He, he's not asking the question with the concept of like imputed forensic righteousness and justification. The lawyer's question is not unrelated to that, but he's specifying who is my neighbor? Who, who's the insider that I'm supposed to love? It is in response to this question that Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable, two religious professionals would be rendered unclean by assisting the wounded man, and so they're compelled to pass by him in order to continue to do their religious duties. They see standing with God as an individual matter between God and themselves, and aiding the beaten man would be a disruption to their standing with God. The person who turns out to be a good neighbor is a heretic. Samaritan. He, he's regarded as unclean from birth. 
He's heretical in his beliefs. He's a sworn enemy of the Jews. He doesn't just do actions of a good neighbor, but in doing them, proves himself to be a true neighbor. And what Jesus is saying, a, a insider in the community of those who belong to God's kingdom. That is, his actions demonstrate that he's a true citizen of the community that will share in God's inheritance. So the, the most subversive aspect of Jesus' answer wasn't the beaten man was a neighbor to someone in need, but that according to the law of Moses, the Samaritan was a true neighbor to the lawyer and to Israel. And the implications for the lawyer wasn't love your neighbor like the Samaritan did, but love the Samaritan who is your neighbor and a fellow heir of the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that. Because in our current moment, it is so very easy to pick tribes and peoples, earmark them, insiders, outsiders, and to give our love consequently. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska wrote a book called Them. Uh, we read that a couple years ago in one of the book clubs. Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He argues that the root of societal vitriol isn't ultimately political. Yes, there's real differences about very important things in the political arena, but that has always been true of political and governmental systems. What's different today is the extremes that normal people are now willing to go to dehumanize one another. Sass believes these trends come from a loss of a sense of place, a decline in human-to-human -human relationships. He talks about the significant dehumanization that technology can bring. And he says if we're going to rebuild community in a digital age, if we're going to be happy, we need to realize that human beings uh, shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be um, free from real people in real places, but grow roots into places and people. Now, how do we do this when so much of us lack a sense of place and a lack, uh, sense of, a lack of people? The lack of rootedness, the lack of place, the lack of real human life interactions hamper us in seeing each other. Right? One of the things about that, that opening scene in Beef is they can't see each other. They don't know who their beef is actually with initially. And that's how it is for all of us. It makes, us, it, makes it easier to not see it makes it easier to create division and live into it, to, to separate into tribes, especially if we're middle to upper class. We have this privilege that enables us with such ease to, to a life of separation from the other, to not have to have overlap with others. And so the call, it's not a return to Mayberry or something like it. The call is to a call to empathy and compassion, to seeing others differently. Like sympathy is feeling for a person like, you, uh, there's this great Brene Brown clip where she sticks her head down into a hole and she sees what's happening. That's sympathy. But, but empathy is when you jump into the hole and feel as if you're with the person getting into the pit. What, what makes it difficult for us to have empathy? Well, we haven't lived their life. We, we haven't had their experiences. We, we think empathy pushes us to ignore uh, a conviction. We, we worry if we appreciate the difficulties or challenges someone else might have we might be tempted to lower our own standards. And yet the incarnation, God enters in and identifies with us. 
Empathy harnessed by the gospel moves us to have compassion. So let me ask you this. Who in your life right now do you find difficult to love? Who do you have difficulty giving your face to? Your time? Your energy? Your attention? Who, who do you easily dismiss? Who do you easily ignore? I remember when I became a Calvinist, in cage stage, it became very easy for me to uh, look down on those who are not as enlightened. Right? It's so ironic. I mean, it's so dumb. Like Calvinism, like in, in its very essence, says that God does all this stuff and you do nothing, right? And here you are, having been given maybe some idea of that, judging other people who don't have that same knowledge. But it's what we do as human beings. Who is easy for you to pass by and not see? Are there, are there people that you tend to dehumanize through objectification? And we objectify in a lot of ways. Like even um, when we gossip about another person, we are objectifying them. Who do you do that to? Who, who can't you find empathy for? Now here's the question. If, if you've been blessed with the face of God through Christ, if you're beholding the glory of that Jesus, how can beholding the glory of that Jesus help you to humanize those people you're thinking about in your heart and your mind? In Matthew 25, on the final day of judgment, Jesus says there's going to be this great separation between those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. And the separation is based, according to Jesus, on whether people fed, gave drink, welcomed, clothed, or visited Jesus when he was in need. Now notice what I said right there. Did you feed me? Did you give me drink? Did you welcome me? This is Jesus talking. Did you clothe me? Did you visit me? He's not talking about him, but other image bearers who were in need. Now, both sheep and goats, according to Jesus in this Matthew 25 passage, ask when they did or didn't do these things. And Jesus answers them, when they, didn't or, when they did or didn't do it for who? The least of these. The, the word in both cases is to see. When the unrighteous and righteous looked upon the least of these, what or who did they see? Because Jesus says they were looking upon himself. Do you see? Now, the, the needs of the hungry and the thirsty can be observable. The stranger, they may not be familiar to you, so also kind of observable. Obviously, the naked, observable. But, but the prisoner, the sick, the elderly, harder to see. But Jesus says the righteous see. They see faces. They see the image. 
we talked about uh, you know, needing kids workers. It's hard to see them. It's easy to say, oh, you're so cute. Oh, look at you. It's harder to get down on your knee, to teach them, to change them, to wipe their tears, to hear their cries. Do you see the least of these? Because if you do, you see Jesus. Those are big words, y'all. Now, in Matthew's gospel, king is used twice as much as Mark or Luke. A third is as much in, in John. Right? In, in Matthew's gospel, you have the three kings. You have King Herod, who wasn't an actual king. He had no claim to Israel's throne. The wise men are looking for the king of the Jews. Jesus talks about kings and their ways to... And, and, and he teaches the disciples through that about the kingdom of heaven. When, when Jesus is on trial, he's mocked as a king. Others call him king in, in, in sincerity. In this Matthew 25 passage, it's one of the few times that Jesus calls himself king. In the great day, the king, Jesus, will separate the sheep and the goats. He warns them to see the least of these because they're vice regents of the king. They are images of the king and the kingdom wherever they go. Every place they step in the world, they represent King Jesus as little kings, little queens. Do you see? Christ's desire for us to see the image of God in others, hear me, in every other we meet. To have our vision restored of seeing Christ in them. And in seeing them, when we see them, when we just see them, We are already starting the blessing. You've been blessed. God sees you. His face is turned towards you. The light of his countenance is upon you. His face is beaming towards you. You're a satellite dish with the beaming, radiant love of God, his presence upon you. Do you give that to someone else? Recently, I mean, I've uh, had a lot of things going on in my life, if you, as you might know. And you have a lot of, you, there's also a lot of things that many of you don't know. And uh, I was texting with a friend, and I was telling him what was happening. And he sent this text back. And I was sitting with Danette, we're sitting in a chair. And the text, in the text, everything that he said to me about his story lining up with my story. Y'all, I was in that moment so seen. And there was something about that that was holy and beautiful. That he, The empathy that he had towards me and his story towards me allowed me to like open up. There is something in being seen. Beauty, ugly, hardship, glory moments. Do you see? This leads to the last point, looking at the body. And, and Isaac mentioned this, which I love when this happens just randomly. I didn't tell him about this, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the body metaphor to describe the church in Corinth. If Christ is your king, Paul says, you should live by his words. Paul says that the church, the individuals who make it up, 
are one with Christ in the church. They're, they're united to the one body of Jesus by the one Spirit who is one with the Father and the Son. The Trinity then is this basis for unity and calls us, the church then, to use our gifts in relation to one another. Now Paul is saying as you use these gifts, you reflect, you beam God's face and love back upon someone else in the body. Now you do this oftentimes through sacrificial love, right? Sacrificial love is the social order of the body. It's the way of the cross, the church. It's what animates them. Like, what, what animates you? What makes you come alive? For, for the church, what animates the church is blessing others by being present to them, seeing them, being seen by them, then using your gifts, your story, your presence to bless them, even if that costs you. How easy is it to love your spouse when your spouse gives you everything that you might ever want? Sacrificial love, love, is when expectations aren't met, that you still press in to love them when it costs. Paul emphasizes this when he says, the, the weaker gifts of the body, the hidden things, deserve greater honor and praise in the body. Now, he starts to talk about the backside of the body of Christ. Who is the backside? The hidden parts of the body. And then he says those people need to be recognized because they're hidden. Me, mouthpiece, seen every week, less need to be recognized. But those hidden in the body, again, the point is, the weaker parts of the body need to be seen. The church is the body of Jesus on earth. This is how Jesus offers himself to the earth through the church. Coming to Christ is coming to his body, united to him with members through baptism, eating and drinking at the one table in communion, experiencing deep relationship in the one and other commands of the church, seeing him by hearing his voice as his word is spoken. In, in Flannery O'Connor's Parker's Backstory, the wayward O.E., Obadiah Elehu Parker, is unhappily married to the hell-fying preacher uh, Sarah Ruth. Sarah Ruth is particularly disdainful and judgmental of tattoos that cover O.E. everywhere except his back. One day while plowing, O.E. was blinded by the white-hot sun, carelessly slamming the farm owner's tractor into the lone tree standing at the crest of the doomed field. The collision threw him onto his back. The lone tree uh, and it, it burst into flames. His shoes are cast off. He, he's terrified by this theoph theophonic vision of a burning tree and shoes, and he's determined to settle his torment and placate his wife by having a Byzantine Christ tattooed over the entirety of his back. It's funny. After the first of what would take two full days... I don't know if you remember this. I did this whole thing on April Fool's Day when we changed our logo and moved in this building and changed our name. And I sent out an Instagram post of the elders, all of them at the tattoo parlor, getting tattoos of like giant roosters across their back. And I had this whole story about how Richard, like he uh, got dehydrated because the, the artist had to do it in six hours and he like couldn't even stand up and he was like fainting on the seat. And then he got his tattoo. Now, none of that happens. The tattoo, expecting to see the complete face of Jesus 
on Parker's back. back. Instead, you just saw a mouth, the beginning of heavy eyebrows, a straight nose, but the face was empty. The eyes hadn't been put in. It don't have eyes, Parker cried out. That'll come, the artist said in due time. We have another day to go get it yet. In a manner of speaking, the face of Christ has been filled with the body of Christ. Having beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ, Christians can look at other people as image bearers of that same glory, especially recognizing those who are most easily overlooked. Christians can look to the body of Christ for the regular appearing of the glory in Christ. Now, don't miss this, church. City Press. How will you see the glory of Christ? Yes, in the preaching of the word. Yes, in communion. But in each other. One of Jesus' aims was not just to give us a vision for God and his glory, but to renew our vision for one another. In his face, his body, we see the image of God. In him, but also in one another. The the face of Jesus beaming with glory transforms us, according to Paul, from one degree of glory to another. Our gaze is directed to other people, to those different, to those hard to love, to one another. Do we see in one another their humanity, their their dignity, their possibilities because of the the grace of God? Do Do we see each other's glories and shames and not look away? Do we give each other the dignity of looking at one another in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our glory? In what ways this morning do you need to be seen and Who do you need to see? And can you give yourself both to be seen and to see the possibilities of what God's grace can do? I want to end with this. It's often quoted. C.S. Lewis. What people were made to be and what they can and will be one day by God's grace. Hear this. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Hear that? The load, weight, burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. Now, this is an important point because... I think this is that humility as a differentiation that you're not the Christ, that you need the vine, the Christ, to do this. You are not Messiah in someone else's life when you carry or hold them, hold their stories, hold their stuff, hold their faces. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature with it, with, which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship 
or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. I want to say there's two good movies that are about these two things, by the way, but I'll save that. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. You are the most holy objects presented to my senses for the last 13 years. I have learned so much from you. I'm so thankful. I've been challenged by you. I've been loved by you. You, many of you, have seen my glories and my shames, and you have not turned away. And I've been changed from one degree of glory to another. It is a beautiful thing. And I got one more week. I'll be back in March. It's not like it's that. It's really anticlimactic. But as you uh, remember that in one another, you have this incredible, incredible thing church to bless but not just one another all the others that aren't here can't be seen you have been made to bless them amen God help us we're so thankful for uh the face of God turned towards us in Christ. So we think about as we come to the table this morning, we will receive that look of love, broken body, shed blood, food that we can taste and embody, nourished by your, your son. Who we, we can't see but by faith, but he's here serving us. He, he's ushering us into the heavenlies. to to feast with him. But it's also, there's a glory with the people we'd sit next to. The the image of God in each of us. The face of Christ that is, turns towards us in all the times when we're suffering and struggling and uh, in all the times we celebrate. The people we invite to our parties and like, it is their faces that beam towards us. It's a picture, a hint of the glory of Jesus turned towards us. Help us to take on the, the, be animated by that vision. To take on the mantle, to do, to, do, uh, to love each other, to, to, to push into glory and shame with one another and not look away.
Help us to be that church. And then for the people that even um, the, the most difficult amongst us to love, which, which each of us are, by the way, help us. Help us to see. Help us to see the least of these, God. Because when we see them, we see you. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.